0: You said you had enough back, but instead you attacked. You got me out of my head. It won't go unsolved this time. We'll catch you, and your crimes will be shining.
1: Welcome to Cold Case MHS, where real education meets real life. I'm your host, Randy Hubbard, an instructor of Cold Case MHS. So most of you that have listened to us noticed that I've had a couple of co-hosts and some people come on that have done some of the job of a co-host for me. But now those students are moving on, and I have to move on myself. And so I am now going to introduce my new co-host, Lydia, who is probably one of the most tenacious students that I think I've ever had and thank god she's here because she's going to keep me in line for the next year at least so i want to say thank you and i want to say welcome to the show and we look forward to what the season is going to bring us
2: yeah thank you so much i'm so excited to be here to me cold case is about telling these stories and just telling about the people who have never had their stories told to me it's about like as we say in class speaking for those who cannot these these poor victims they've had terrible things happen to them and their cases have just gone unnoticed for so long and as I hope to go into forensics in the future I want to take this mission with me to tell the stories of those who cannot and speak for the victims and hopefully solve solve some cases in the future but here we're just trying to get the stories out so that way if anyone knows anything then they can take the information to the proper places but yeah i really appreciate being on this podcast
1: so thank you for having me well no problem and we look forward to it and season three is going to be awesome every community has those individuals who take their life experiences and share them with the youth of the community they are always telling stories giving young kids lessons on how to overcome adversity or just greeting people with a warm genuine smile Many of these people own or work in small businesses that often help those in need to get groceries or even just get a haircut. They are mentors, looked to when things in the community seem to be unraveling. Many were part of the unraveling when they were a kid, but now they try to stop the younger generations from making the same mistakes or ones that could ruin their lives forever. Unfortunately, those individuals often find themselves in the middle of chaos. The storm is brewing in the neighborhood and its devastation will hit soon. Like a tornado rolling across the plains, it always seems those on the good side of life get hit the hardest. In Springfield, Ohio, a pillar of the community who took the long road to get there, found himself in the eye of the storm. And the storm would not let go.
3: Christy Armand Sr. was one loved by many. He was a community leader, a son, a friend, but most importantly a father. But on a faded Saturday morning in March of 2012, tragedy struck and his family's lives were never the same. During the course of our research, we got the opportunity to speak with Chris's daughter, India, about her father. She told us that her father was a very caring and social man. He was known to offer free haircuts to kids in the community. Along with being an amazing man, he was an even better father. She explained that he'd had some run-ins with the law when he was younger, but he turned his life around for the sake of his family. He had a large family, including 10 of his own kids and three stepkids. Along with being a father to his own children, he was a father to the community's kids. India told us a story about one example of this.
4: On the morning of the crime, Chris was working at New Flavor Barbershop, or 1833 South Yellow Spring Street, on Saturday, March 17, 2012, when around 9.45 a.m., a couple of men walked into the barbershop and shot Chris multiple times in the torso. If you're not from the area, it could look like a random act of violence or a robbery. But if you look at the crime rate in Springfield, there's a high chance it can be something else. The crime rate is 49.61 per 1000. In comparison to Ohio's rate of one per 297 people experiencing violent crime, Springfield's is one in nine. This makes Springfield safer than 3% of US cities. We'll put a link to a map showing Springfield's violent crime density in the podcast notes. Although a possibility, we don't b- believe Chris's death to be a random act of violence due to a series of events that led up to the crime.
1: So this is what happens in towns like this. A lot of times people kind of get stuck in those towns. and They never move away or if they do, they always come back. And there's a lot of times family frictions, especially over time, and they seem to not disappear. And generation after generation they don't like each other it's kind of like the old Hatfields and McCoy's but what happens in these kind of towns is a lot of times it turns into violence and this seems to be happening here seems to be happening that this group of individuals either family members or small groups tend to be in conflict all the time and as a matter of fact what was really disheartening during this process of looking into Chris's case India told us that her mother also was killed just recently from somebody that was from one of those other groups, you know, and that was actually 12 years after Chris was killed. So it just shows you that that perpetual friction is always going to be there in towns like this, which is very unfortunate.
3: We are going to discuss these events, but we have to acknowledge that most of the information we are about to share comes from the family members of Chris. We are unable to confirm their full validity with officials, but the information that India has shared with us circumstantially checks out with the information that we have found in existing newspapers and articles. We will be using mostly pseudonyms to protect their victims, families, and others involved.
4: During the beginning of our research, we looked at a few news articles from Dayton Daily News. In one of them, a Reverend Robert Buford said that the incident was likely the result of tension that grew from a fight at a bar earlier this year. So when we decided to talk to India, we asked her about that incident. She explained that one of Chris's sons, Ethan, who was 16 at the time, and his cousin Johnny were sitting at a bar. There was another man there, Jordan, who Johnny got into an argument with. Jordan asked Johnny, you don't like my brother? And Johnny replied with, no, I don't. Johnny and Jordan ended up getting into a fight, and Ethan stepped in to defend his cousin, which led to an even bigger fight.
1: In forensic science, we talk a lot about motives, and that's one of our big things when we talk about profiling. So tell us a little bit about what our motives, and what do you think was the motive in this case?
2: So some of the most common motives that we learned about were money, love, drugs, revenge, and respect. So I think that we believe that in this case, in Chris's case, that this was about respect. Cause as we said previously, that these families have disputes for a long time. So if someone felt slighted against, or someone felt disrespected in a public place, such as the situation with uh, Chris's cousin, they could have felt disrespected and felt they needed to take action and reparations for that. Because these disputes last a long time, and that if someone disrespects their family, they need to take action for that.
1: Right, and it's all about stature. And if you've been disrespected, you've got to get it back somehow. And unfortunately, a lot of times, at leads to violence.
3: After the bar fight, Ethan had called his older brother, Bruce, to let him know what had happened. Bruce decided he was going to confront Jordan, and went to a gas station that he was known to hate. Instead of finding Jordan, he speaks with Stephen about his whereabouts. Bruce says something along the lines of, Where's Jordan at? Because I want to know why he's trying to fight my brother when he's much younger than him. Stephen, being Jordan's friend, decided to stick up for him. A physical altercation broke out between Stephen and Bruce, which ended with Stephen having a broken jaw and needing to get it wired. Stephen's mother called Chris Sr. very upset that Bruce broke her son's jaw. Chris stood up for his kids and responded by asking him why her adult sons were beating up his young son and nephew.
4: In response to this event, it led to another incident a couple of weeks before Chris's murder involving both Stephen and Ethan. Stephen was still upset about his jaw getting broken, so he and his friends followed Ethan to their grandmother's house. Stephen and his friends shot at Ethan. Ethan's uncle tried to defend his family by shooting back and ended up hitting one of the men that followed them. Chris Sr. called the police to file a report on this incident. They were aware of the bar fight and the shooting, but made no arrest in relation to either. We are unsure of the reasons for this. We would like to specify that Ethan's uncle had his conceal and carry license, so it was considered self-defense, so he would not have been arrested or potentially blamed for this incident.
1: So in all of our cold cases, they're considered to be open and active, which is one reason that they don't give a lot of information to the public. And also in this particular case, because it was a drive-by type shooting and in a response to it, and shootings in general make it really difficult to collect evidence to point directly at someone. So what were some of the issues with the evidence they had in this case?
2: Yeah, so uh, when the police convict or arrest somebody for a crime, they need to have substantial evidence. It can't be he said, he said, she said, all of that. They need to have tangible evidence, and unfortunately, just in this case, there was none. It was just one person's word against the others, and unless somebody would talk, which, as we've discussed, will be very unlikely in this case. Unless somebody uh, will talk and provides a concrete piece of evidence or a new piece of information that the police haven't heard before, it is unlikely that someone will get arrested for Chris's crime.
3: These incidents may or may not have been the reason for the violence against Chris. We are simply trying to provide as much information as possible so justice can be served. The only ones truly responsible for his death were those who walked in that morning to take his life.
4: India gave us some specifics about the crime that we were not able to find in any articles. She explained that Chris usually opened alone, and he opened that day at 9am, and his first appointment wasn't until 10.30, so he decided to take a phone call with one of his friends. Around 9.45, he was still on the phone with his friend, and a couple men walked into the barbershop. He said, hold on, who's this? Moments later, the friend reported hearing rustling noises come over the phone, and then Chris came back on and said, I've just been shot. The friend immediately hung up and called 911.
2: In our cold case class, we understand the importance of victimology, which is understanding who the victim is, what they did, and all of that. So, in this case, in Chris's case, it's especially important to know. Notice that someone knew Chris's pattern. Someone understood what he did every day, like, especially in this case, how he opened alone, how he's by himself, how he would have had easy access to commit this crime because no one would have been there around to witness it.
1: Yeah, and I think what's unique about it is that they knew exactly when it opened, so they had probably been to the shop before. They may even have got their hair cut by Chris because Chris oftentimes would give haircuts for free to people that needed it, and it almost seems like maybe they took advantage of the fact that he was in such a routine and that he was such a nice person.
4: We wanted to add in this clip from our conversation with India because we believe that it shows a manifestation of Chris's character and how he would always put his kids before everything else, even himself.
2: On my dad's phone, because I have his phone, um, he had a certain ringtone for his kids and it was ti live in the sky so i'm thinking even though he was shot i'm thinking like when i called and when my sister called i'm thinking he may have heard the ringtone and he didn't want to answer but then when uncle clayton called him it was it was a different ringtone and i'm thinking that's maybe why he answered for him
1: These conversations are really what we're trying to get out of this class because these conversations allow you as a student to really communicate with somebody who is close to that case. And the goal of that is to find out who that person really is, not just what happened to them.
2: Yeah, most students who take this class have never experienced a tragedy to the level that these people have. So getting to talk to the real family members that actually went through this helps us see more of, as the victim, instead of just a victim, instead of just what happened to them. It's more of who they are. We get to see them as a real person. Like as in my case, I got to talk to some critical people who helped me see m- my victim as more than just a name. Especially with Chris talking to his his daughters, they got to see who Chris was, how genuine of a person he was, which really is what we're trying to do here. We're trying to build empathy for these victims because what's happened to them is, is awful and right. we just know their stories we don't know who they are so in talking with family members we get to see who they are which will help us tell their stories right
1: and I think that emotional connection drives you to do more work
2: yeah, it inspires you to be be more passionate about their case because you're like this is was such a genuine nice person what happened to them was awful and it should get solved
3: he was still alive when first responders arrived to the scene. They had him life flated to Miami Valley Hospital, where he eventually bled out during surgery. Although we were unable to view his autopsy report due to this case still being considered open and our FOIA request being denied, India told us that the surgeon said there were five shots to the torso. This is contrary to information we found in the newspapers. We were under the impression that it was one to the head and one to the torso.
1: So, this is a big problem with any case, and even for police officers and stuff, because sometimes information gets out that is not necessarily true. And unfortunately, it's like playing telephone. You know, you tell somebody one thing, by the time it gets somewhere else, it's a completely different story, but yet that falsehood is still there, whatever you said earlier. And unfortunately, these things stick around in the news and in research for years. I was in a uh, video conference with somebody that was a podcaster that talked about his father being killed and he actually was kept out of the crime scene but was told information from other people that supposedly saw some things and the information was wrong and he took that to the news and then the news put it on newspapers and on tv and all that kind of stuff and he says even now today when he goes back and looks at it those false pieces of information are still out there And that's a big problem for us.
2: Yeah, because a lot of our cases we're dealing with are in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, when the internet wasn't as prevalent as it is today. So we have to go through multiple sources. We have to talk with as many people as we can to see if what we're reading in an article is actually true. Or if, like you said, it was just, oh, someone said they saw something and decided to go to the press about it. Because the story, the newspapers... They're a business. They will just take a story and run with it if it's a good headline, even if it's not true, which unfortunately, a lot of cases and crimes are make snappy headlines, so they like to take whatever information
4: they can and just publish it. Some people may be wondering, if we have all this information, how is this case not closed? When we talked to India, she said that the Springfield police explained to her that they don't have enough concrete and or physical evidence to convict the suspected parties. They explain that they are, quote-unquote, just waiting for someone to talk. If you have any information regarding this case, we urge you to call or email the police department. The number for the Springfield City Police Department is 937-324-7680. And the email is spd at springfieldohio.gov. If you're not comfortable doing that, you're always welcome to email or message us. Our information is going to be in the description of this spot.
3: We just wanted to give a special thanks to India for being gracious enough to share her father's
4: story with us. We also wanted to extend this thank you to Chris's family, especially Nakisha, Krista, and Desiree, for supporting our class and our efforts to bring light to their father's case. They shared a bunch of photos with us, so we will link a photo slideshow in the podcast description if you are interested in seeing them.
1: During our research into Chris's murder, we were in continuous communication with his daughter, India. While texting with her one day, I asked if she could send us some pictures of Chris so that we could represent him well in our presentation. What I received in response was shocking and sickening. India stated to me that her mother had just been shot and killed by the same man that she believed killed her father nearly 12 years ago. The saddest part was that her mother was killed on her birthday while standing on the other side of her door begging the individual to leave her home. The individual was looking for someone who was part of that long dispute, and he believed that that person was in the house. William Calhoun was arrested and is awaiting trial for the brutal murder of Raquel Fowler, ex-wife of Chris DiArrimon. Since her murder, the police have now started to re-interview people about Chris's murder. Hopefully soon, both Chris and Raquel can rest in peace knowing that their killer has been convicted. Thank you for listening to Season 3, Episode 2, The Long Dispute. We will keep you updated on the pending trial of this man accused of the murders of Chris and Raquel. I want to say thank you to India and her sisters for allowing us to tell the story of Chris and now of Raquel. I also want to thank Gabby and Ashton for their hard work on this case. And I also want to say thank you to Lydia for joining me on this podcast. Cold Case MHS, Monsters and Demons is written and edited by the Mason High School Cold Case Students and produced by me. The artwork for this podcast was created by students from the MHS Digital Design interns. The theme song, Believe Me, was written and performed by MHS student Alexa Dahl. Tune in next time when Ohio State medical student Brian Schaefer just vanished.
0: Believe me, it won't happen again All those things that you said weren't true you had enough back, but instead you attacked, you got me out of my head, it won't go and solve this time, we'll catch you and your crimes will be shy. you said you had not back but instead you attacked you got me out of my head it won't go and this time we'll catch you and your crimes will be shy